We are so excited to welcome back coach Diane Dempster of impactparenting.com. If you haven't listened to her earlier episode where she was joined by her partner, Elaine, that was episode 149. That episode goes into the history of how we know each other and you can just hear why we adore them so much. We're so aligned with everything that they say, really. And then also be sure to go back and listen to Elaine's episode, which was episode 135, where we talk about parenting your complex kids and the book that Elaine has written about that topic. This episode is so rich in content. We're so excited to share it with you. But before we dig into what's going on in this episode, I wanted to let everybody know if you are on our email list, you've received the trigger framework from Diane this morning that she talks about a lot in this episode. If you are not on our email list and would like access to that framework, go to www.learnsmarterpodcast.com, find episode 157 and register for our email list there. It should send it to you. In this episode, we discuss the anatomy of a trigger. Diane takes us through all the stages of triggers, aware, alert, alarm, and discusses how different people have different triggers. We get personal in this episode, and she talks to us about raising the level of consciousness and understanding the story that you have told yourself, and then the reaction that you're having to that story. She also highlights the difference between ending an argument versus solving a conflict, how the key to helping someone recover is compassion, how bottom lining is critical, and you'll hear how she bottom lines for the two of us, and how important it is to separate the trigger reaction from problem solving. She also digs deeper into the difference between fake calm and real calm. We continue the conversation with Diane over on Patreon. Patreon is our $5 a month subscription that supports the work that we're doing here on the Learn Smarter podcast, and as a thank you for Supporting the work that we're doing, we have extended conversations and content that we only release there. And in that Patreon, she discusses with us why yelling works, the pinch idea that attracts the ADHD brain, and not taking things personally. If you want to hear that conversation and other extended conversations that we've had over on Patreon, that's www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast. And we'd be honored to have your support over there. Smarties, we really hope you enjoy Diane as much as we do. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 157 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Cap. And today we have Diane Dempster on with us, and we are so excited to have her back. Welcome, Diane. Hi, guys. I'm excited to be here, too. Yay. And today we're going to be talking about some really interesting things. I'm excited that we had a Diane episode, an Elaine episode, and a Diane and Elaine episode. (laughs) (laughs) You guys just can't get enough of us. We adore you, and you guys know it. (laughs) Totally. So today we're going to be talking about triggers, and I'm so excited to learn because I know this is your jam, and even just the language before we hit record, I was like, oh, I'm going to be learning a lot right now. Mm-hmm. We're going to be coached. I'm, I'm ready for it. <laughs> well, and it's really funny. I always believe that you should teach what you're called to learn. It's like one of those kind of super philosophical kind of things. And I'm a recovering yelling mom. 
I remember like of all my moments with my kids, one of the most profound was a moment where I had to come back and just like eat crow and say, I totally lost it. And I don't want to be that mom. And I want to fix this and I need your help. And it really changed the dynamic between me and my kids. Yep. And it's been this great sort of amazing lifelong learning. Everybody's triggers look different and everybody's flavor of triggers look different. And there's just all of these moving pieces to it. And every time I start picking up a rock, something else shows up and it's just mm. it's a cool sort of thing. And just that concept of emotional intensity in the ADHD community is still a really, really new thing. I remember when I kind of started in this 12 years ago, they were still trying to figure out whether emotion management was an executive function or not. They kind of left it over here and then started kind of bringing it in. Russell Barkley's like, no, we got to talk about emotion management. It's a thing. And so part of this is kids with ADHD with emotion management and meltdowns and tantrums and some of that stuff that we all deal with. And part of this as a parent who's not ADHD is the triggers that come along with parenting because these kids can be frustrating. These kids can be worrisome and it can be super hard. Life is hard, but parenting a complex kid is super hard and can be very trigger producing. So it started off with, okay, how do we handle meltdowns in our kids? And what I found out in that was it's the parents are that are having the meltdowns that they're unhappy with. And so I started kind of focusing my lens there and saying, how can I help the moms and the dads change their dynamic and help their kids to manage their triggers, which will ultimately help their kids to be more successful in life, change the relationships. I mean, we want to have good relationships with our kids. And if we're yelling all the time, that's no fun for anybody. No, it's really not. What I appreciate about that story is that you went and repaired the relationship too. I know that's not something that happens necessarily in a lot of homes. It's an important component that kind of struck me about that story. But before we dig further into trigger management, I wanted to just take a step back in case our audience hasn't listened to those previous episodes and sort of have you introduce yourself to our audience a little bit about who you are, what you do and who you do it for. Great. So I am co-founder and parent coach at impactparents.com. Used to be Impact ADHD. We changed the name about a year and a half ago because we were focusing beyond ADHD. We focus on supporting and coaching and training parents of what we call complex kids. So kids with ADHD, anxiety, spectrum challenges, learning differences, all of those sorts of things. And what I would say is that recommended treatment for kids with executive function challenges is train the parents so that the parents can help the kids to change their behaviors. And that's really what we do. We teach parents what to do, and then we coach them through how to make it more sustainable and more personalized and really help change family dynamics so that kids can be more successful and families can reconnect and have strong relationships because that's a real key part of what most of us, when we have kids, we have them because we want to have fun with our families and not because we want to be little dictators and raise little robots or whatever it is. Wow. Yeah. If you haven't listened to episode 149 with both Elaine and Diane talking about impact parents and how we first met them and sort of our love story, definitely go back and listen because it's got a lot of useful information and sort of what sparked us wanting to talk more with Diane about triggers and all the things that she is so passionate about and knows so well to help us understand and help too. So go back and listen to that episode for sure. 
Awesome. So tell me guys, what are the things that trigger you? Let's start there. What are the things that upset you? (laughs) Personally or professionally? (laughs) Either one. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fair question. (laughs) I think professionally, I really struggle with a parent-child dynamic that isn't productive, effective, and really reflective. I think that's the key component that I really love when I have that relationship with a parent who can reflect back on what has occurred, have that sort of conversation about repairing things. And I struggle with a parent who in the practice where the child's is the problem, as Steph and I will say, the identified patient. And it's like the fix it. Here, fix them. So fix it parents are a trigger for you, right? Right. Okay. Steph, what about you? A trigger is the overly anxious parent that bounces around from thing to thing and situation to situation. The very anxious ones are triggers for me. Two interesting things about what you described is number one is that everybody's trigger is different. I mean, the things professionally or personally that trigger us are different. And the thing that triggers both of you is actually a triggered person, right? So the triggered parent who's in fix-it mode, right? The triggered parent, they're not consciously working through what's going on with their kiddo. They're fixing it because, and I'll tell you about that why in just a few minutes when we get there. But just to kind of go back to triggers and what we mean by triggers. So triggers are those kind of inklings of irritation and uncomfortableness that happens, right? It's a sort of the story I love to tell because I can tell this. I don't know if I told this in episode, whatever it was, but the first time Elaine and I ever got on a plane together, we're sitting next to each other. We're talking, we're doing work. We're, you know, lots of high energy and the engines start to rev and it's time to take off. And I watch and I'm like, just relaxing and enjoying and about to take off. And I look over and Elaine is literally grabbing onto the arms of the chair and (laughs) holding on tight. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this moment. And she goes, oh my gosh, I hate this moment. And it was just this sort of realization that we're both sitting there in the exact same environment in the exact same cabin of the airplane. She's relatively freaking out. And I'm like, this is so cool. Right. And the interesting thing is she's the risk taker in the relationship. I'm, I'm not the risk taker, right, right. but I love flying. So that's the first thing is that the triggers that we have might be different than other people. And so it's not so much about going, well, when this happens, do this. And when this happens, do that. It's really about recognizing the pattern and the biology behind it. And I've created over the last several years. So this is the model that I call the anatomy of the trigger. And we're going to share this with everybody in the email, right? So that they can see it. So, I want to talk about kind of three levels of brain engagement aware, alert, and alarm, right? So, I think about the brain, there's so many different parts of the brain, but I kind of divide it into three parts. There's the rational brain, which includes your intellect and your executive function, there's the emotional brain, which manages your emotions, and then part of the emotional brain is the amygdala. So, I kind of think about those three components of the brain. And when we're aware, we're just kind of going about our day, doing our thing. We're mostly in our rational brain. Our executive function is kicking in. We're problem solving. We're taking care of business. We're thinking logically. We're applying the learnings we've had over our lifetime, those sorts of things. 
when we go to alarm, we're all in our amygdala. We're in that, we call it amygdala hijack. So the animal part of our brain is going, I got to fight, I got to run away, or I got to freeze to protect myself, right? So those are literally our only choices, fight, flight, or freeze when we're in alarm phase. When we're in alert, which is where a lot of us spend more of our time than we'd like to admit, our rational brain is actually competing with our emotional brain. So we might be thinking about trying to make a decision and our head's spinning and our ideas are floating through our heads. We might have feel fuzzy, all of those sorts of things going on in our head. And some of the core feelings and thoughts that go on when we're in that alert mode are, I got to take care of this. Wow, I've got to fix this. I have to do it myself. It's that sort of engaged, sort of almost animalistic, but not quite animalistic, but you're not actually connected fully to the rational part of your brain. So think about the last time one of you got upset. Can you feel the difference? Where do you notice it in your body? Can you notice kind of how the thought patterns might be different when you're in aware or alert or alarmed? Well, yeah, I think we both got upset pretty recently, actually. And I can like picture it physically. Are you talking about what happened last night? I'm like, when did I get upset? Yes, you got very upset last night. I was very upset last night. (laughs) So upset she FaceTimed me. That's a level. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, my father is ruining my life because he cut the cable and I no longer had a cable access code and we don't have cable here. And I wasn't able to watch my shows, Diane. And I (laughs) had a very big reaction to it. It's been solved. So, did you feel it in your body? Can you think about how your head was swirling? Oh, my heart was racing. I was so mad. (laughs) It, It was in my tummy, it was in my chest. Obviously, there's other things going on at the moment that because it's kind of a big reaction that I had last night, but. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute too. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew it was too big of a reaction, but yet I was upset because I couldn't watch Married at First Sight, which sounds so stupid right now. There you go. (laughs) I was upset. That's a great example. We'll take that one through the model here. And then Stephanie, can you relate to the last time you got really upset about something? I can. I got really (laughs) upset. We were going to run an errand. And we needed to pick something up from somebody else. And I wasn't driving and we needed to go someplace further. And the person driving did not want to have the thing in the car that was given because of COVID and wanted to come back to my house to drop it off and then go on our journey. So they wanted to make an extra stop, right? An out-of-the-way stop, which drives both of us crazy. It was like extra time. It was like backtracking. So let's just say, Rachel, your trigger is, and I'm going to bottom line this, when somebody does something and you have no control over it, right? So dad... Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) And Stephanie, your trigger is wasting time. Let's just use that as an example. Is that probably fair? Wasting time definitely is a trigger, yeah. For ridiculous reasons. Got it. Okay. Okay. If we bottom line each of those, right? And so can you feel the difference between aware, alert, and alarm kind of just generically? Does that resonate and make sense? Yeah. I mean, right now we're aware of it, right? Yep. So let's go back over to the other side of this. So an irritation is what I'm going to call the start of a trigger. Trigger starts with an irritation. Mm -hmm. And I always say that irritation lives in the gap between expectation and reality. 
So Rach, you were going to go and watch your show and you're all excited and you've got your popcorn and you've got your little tasty drink Mm -hmm. and you're ready to sit down and you turn on the TV and you're like, where the bleep is my show? It kept asking me to re-authenticate. I'm like, this has been authenticated. And I deleted. (laughs) Yes. The irritation happened, right? Yes. Stephanie, you expected to get done with this stuff and quickly split. And all of a sudden you're having to make an extra trip and it's like that irritates me, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Okay. So when we have an irritation, an irritation creates a trigger. We can at that point go, wow. Okay. So this is bugging me. I need to take a few deep breaths. I need to reclaim my brain so I can problem solve. So it's like, wow, my cable's not working right now. I wonder what's going on. Let me take a deep breath here. I got to figure out what's going on and take care of it. Oh, I did not take a deep breath, Diane. Let's be very clear. <laughs> Sometimes we do that. Yeah. And there's all kinds of tools and things you could do to reclaim the brain. If you don't reclaim your brain, if what happens with most of us, we get hooked into the story. Oh my gosh, I can't believe my dad did this. This is terrible. He had no right. He didn't even talk to me. Da, 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 right. It's just sort of you're already <laughs> in the story. It moves you up into this reaction. Right. And I'm guessing, Stephanie, that there was some history with this person in the car and all of a sudden it blows up into this big old reaction because it's not just about the extra five minutes to stop at the house and drop off the thing that's a COVID risk, right? It wasn't a COVID <laughs> risk. That's Fair not a enough. problem. Yeah. So, <laughs> I don't want to trigger Stephanie again. So. <laughs> but that's the piece of it. So in that point, we can reclaim the brain or we get caught up in the story. And if we get caught up in the story, we go to reaction. Mm-hmm. So we identified with frustration and anger, right? It's just sort of both of you got irritated and then you got angry about it. The trigger might also be overwhelm or worry. My trigger when my kids were young was looking in the online system at their grades. Like it was still at the point where it's my job to look at the online system, make sure they caught up with stuff. My son's record for missing assignments at one point was like 47 assignments. And so I knew like just going into that online system was a trigger for me, but it wasn't because I was angry. It was because I was scared. He's got so many things that are missing. How is he ever going to fix this? Is he going to graduate from high school? What's going to happen to his future? You know, it's like you can hear my hands ringing, right? Mm-hmm. We all have core coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. right? It's just sort of some of us, when we get upset or we get worried or we get overwhelmed, we go to control. Mm-hmm. And that's that alert voice. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to fix this. I got to take care of this. That's why you were talking earlier about the fix-it parents. A lot of those fix-it parents aren't walking around in alert though. They're worried for their kid's future. They've got to figure out how to yeah. take care of it. They're the only ones that can fix this. We got to do it now. It's an emergency. You know, that's a coping mechanism of control, right? Other people have coping mechanisms of avoidance is another common coping mechanism. So it's a sort of, I get overwhelmed and upset. I'm going to go scroll on Facebook for an hour, or I'm going to go watch a movie, or I'm going to do something to avoid the situation. I don't get any more calm from it, but I'm actually withdrawing myself. I was talking to a family recently and the mom identified that the pattern in their family was that her coping mechanism is control and her son's coping mechanism is avoidance. So he'd get triggered, which would trigger her. And then she's trying to chase him around the house and he's trying to get away because he's got to get space and she's got to make it happen. And it just was this sort of funny dynamic, but acknowledging and being aware of the fact 
that what was really going on as a triggered person really made a difference because it raised the level of consciousness. And that's really the underlying piece of all of this. It's like become more aware of the trigger and you can manage it, right? It's just sort of, if you're automatically hijacked by those stories and those stories happen so fast, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. And I remember this really distinctly. My husband forgot X, Y, and Z. And then all of a sudden my brain's going, he doesn't care about your stuff. He never cared about your stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, why should he? He only takes care of his thing. That's the story kicking in and the story throws you into the reaction. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. When you do actually get all the way to reaction, the important piece of it, because we talk, we all want to get back to problem solving is you actually have to add a step and the step is recovery, right? And so recovery is about getting rid of the emotional energy of the trigger. So that's why people yell or they stomp their feet. You know, it's like, think about all the physical aspects or the loud aspects of somebody who's really triggered. You're doing it because of the emotional energy that's built up you have to get it out of your body. For some people, it just takes five minutes. For some people, like they need 24 hours to recover. I mean, ultimately you want to get back so that you can solve the problem. And this is a pattern that I see a lot is the difference between ending an argument and resolving a conflict, right? It's just sort of you and I can stop fighting about something, but if we don't go back and say, well, you saw it this way and I saw it this way, how are we going to resolve that? You keep repeating the pattern over and over again, and you just keep fighting about the same thing because you haven't actually figured out that you don't agree and how are you going to figure out how to navigate through a disagreement? You're talking about a higher level of consciousness, which sounds great. But last night, when I was, first of all, irritated that the show just wasn't playing, and that's a trigger on its own when like things don't work the way they're supposed to work it really bugs me and I want like an instantaneous fix. And my default is to call Steph and solve my problem. Cause I thought she had a solution. She didn't guys, but I thought she might. <laughs> so how do we stop ourselves from getting hijacked? Yeah. From going into the story. Cause like last night it was a stupid thing. Right. And it didn't really impact anybody. I was the one impacted. I impacted my father's night. He felt so bad. We've now solved the problem, everybody, so just know that. But I can now watch Married at First Sight, so everybody can take a deep breath about that. But, But... So the big piece of it is awareness. I mean, I think that that's the piece of it, is this beginning to notice moms and dads that do trigger journals. This is sort of writing down what are the things that tend to trigger you and looking for those common themes. And so I was able to bottom line for both of you that it's really not about your dad and the cable. It's really about expectations and reality. And for you, it's when stuff doesn't work the way you think it's going to work. That's a big trigger for you. So if you know what your triggers tend to be and you know where you feel them in your body, you can catch them when you're in alert phase before you get all the way to alarm phase. And there's caveats to this because some people go get hijacked so quickly. I parents with kids who go from zero to a hundred, just like that, that takes maturity. And there's some, you know, emotional self-regulation. That's all about the executive function and why some of these kids do have a difficult time, even noticing that they're in alert phase. The other piece of this is that A lot of us don't notice the escalation because we're walking around in alert. We aren't walking around in aware. And especially right now, we're in the middle of a Mm -hmm. pandemic. And so everybody's stress level is a six or a seven. 
if you're stressed out, if you're trying to manage, if you're a super mom and trying to take care of this, that, and the other thing, if you're having a busy day or you're emotionally upset, if you're hormonal, I mean, there's all of these things that impact kind of where your baseline is. If you're already walking around on a scale of zero to 10 at a four or a six, you're going to go into that story much quicker. And so part of it is a regular practice. We teach something, we have a program in mental fitness, which is about noticing and paying attention to those patterns of hijack and being able to self-manage and help your brain to kind of get back to that more neutral in the moment place, right? There's tools like meditation, there's tools just like the deep breaths and that sort of thing. There's all kinds of good things you can do, but part of it is just knowing what's going on and beginning to exercise the muscle because this is just a muscle. What happens is you get triggered and right now there's an automatic response that sends you into a story. The more you're aware of that happening, the more you're going to be able to go, oh, wait, do I, am I going to the story or am I going to go somewhere else today? But it just takes practice. It's metacognition because you, you're you teaching us to be aware of what we're thinking while we're thinking it and almost why. And in sort of like listening to you, I've had like two simultaneous thoughts. The first is like, having a partner who's around and present and very attuned to you, he can, for example, point out triggers. Yep. He's like, okay, when this happens, I'm noticing you doing this a lot. And then I'm triggering him and and we're just a whole trigger family over here. (laughs) Um, So we both have to be cognizant of each other's stuff coming into the relationship. Right. And then I'm thinking about this in terms of, how Steph, you and I coach our teams because getting a quote unquote panicked, upset email from a parent is very triggering for our teams. And Steph and I have a little more experience and a little more perspective. And also we don't have a sense of urgency because there's no such thing as an academic emergency, which is our domain, right? (laughs) So like we can give them a day to sort of respond to it, but it's helpful almost giving us language to be like, okay, this parent was totally triggered. Mm -hmm. This thing happened. And now they've gone into this whole story and they're having this reaction that's directed at you, but it's not about you. They have this whole story of like, my kid's going to fail at life because the English teacher emailed and they did step one of the assignment, but not two through eight of the assignment. Mm -hmm. And how are they ever going to function as an, like they go down this path. I just think it's a helpful sort of framework for those not just living within this family dynamic, but those of us who work and support this dynamic, this family relationships to sort of understand that in how we're responding to Well, and what's coming up is you're saying that it's like, if it's me and I notice that I'm triggered, the language I use here is like reclaim my brain, right? It's just sort of, I can take a few sips of water. I can take a few deep breaths. I can take some space. I can do what I need to do to calm down again so that I can solve the problem at hand, right? If you're working with somebody else, like if it's your kid that's getting triggered or it's in this instance, you just described, it's a parent that you're dealing with that's triggered or it's your co-parent that's triggered. Mm-hmm. You can help them to recover. And the key to doing that is showing compassion. Wow. I can tell you're really upset. Wow. This was really hard for you. Wow. 
I can only imagine how frustrating it is or how scary it is when your kid is failing math class that of course you would be upset. You know, it's that sort of, if you acknowledge and so often when it's our kids, I see parents do this all the time, their kids upset. I'm failing at math. I'm a loser. I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm terrible. I want to, I mean, kids say things like I want to kill myself. I mean, it's like this sort of the clearly a triggered reaction and the parents go, Oh no, Johnny, you're fine. You're amazing. You're so smart. You're so this, you're so that. And what the kid needs at that moment is acknowledgement of the fact that they're feeling like crap and they've created this story, give them space to feel that so that they can recover so that those tools of you're amazing, you're so smart, you hear all your strengths. They can hear when they're down in problem solving. They can't hear it when they're up in the reaction. Right. One of the things that I think that you're making my head explode about actually is like you bottom lining it. And that at the end of the day, all these experiences that do trigger me seem different, but they're not. They're not. That's all the same biology. It's all the same pattern. The joke I always tell is imagine you're at the store and you're going to get your favorite ice cream. So my partner loves Chunky Monkey, right? So he's going to the store. I'm buying him some Chunky Monkey and I get there and Ben and Jerry have not been there. And all of a sudden there's no Chunky Monkey and that irritation is there. And if I say, oh my gosh, here I am. There's no Chunky Monkey. He's going to be so disappointed. This is terrible. He was really counting on it. I'm going to react if I go, okay, wait, I think he can handle fish food this week instead of Chunky Monkey. If I can calm myself down, I can go back to problem solving. But it's literally the same science, whether it's ice cream or whether it's your kids failing math class. Hmm. How do we bottom line it if you're not right here next to us, Diane? To bottom line it for ourselves. The bottom line here is to recognize that trigger management is a separate part of problem solving, right? It's sort of, if you don't address the fact that one of you or both of you is triggered, you literally can't get to problem solving. Ultimately, if you're struggling with something that's going on with your kid, or you're struggling with something that's going on with you, your goal is to solve the problem, whether it's math class or the ice cream or whatever it is. If anyone in the room is triggered, their ability to participate in the problem solving is limited because they're not even in that part of their brain. They're in the emotional part of their brain. So the bottom line here is pay attention to triggers and make sure that you're actively managing them before you're trying to problem solve so that you can problem solve more effectively. Just compassion forward. Compassion or really even just acknowledging if you've got a really upset kid giving him space to be upset or helping him develop tools for managing his upset. He's upset because you're asking him to get off the computer when he doesn't want to. So parents do this all the time. Kid is upset because they don't want to get off the computer. Mom comes in and says, your 15 minutes is up. It's time to get off your game. And in the kid's mind, okay, there's an irritation there. I expected that I had more time. And the reality is that I had no time. And he goes into a trigger. If mom's like, if you don't get off, you're going to lose even more time and you're not going to be able to have your electronics for a whole month. And, you know, it's like this sort of that even inflames him even more. If you take the minute to go, okay, wait a second, I can't do this with an upset kid. Let me help my kid to calm down. You separate the calming down from the problem solving. It can really change the whole dynamic. So how so with that video game example? So with a video game example, if the kid is flaming out, they're going to dig in Mm -hmm. and it's going to create this dynamic. 
It's like a power struggle then. When the power struggle happens, then the parent gets triggered, right? It's just sort of one the common things that parents get triggered around. They get triggered around disrespectful conversations. They get triggered around kids who lie. They get triggered by kids who don't do as well in school or kids who say they'll do one thing and then they can't do it. If I'm triggered by that, I can't look objectively and go, wow, my kid's having a hard time being honest right now, or my kid's really having a hard time communicating right now. So the big thing about the electronics is, mom, you got to stay calm. You've got to help your kiddo to stay calm. You may not be able to solve this problem in a moment. You might need to have a blowout. You may need to let the kid play for a few more minutes and help them to unravel from it. But if you go into the power struggle, chances are you're going to end up in the fight. Not escalating it. Like if you don't get off right now, you can't have it for a month. Well, and that gets into a whole other conversation. Because so when we talked with Elaine, we were talking about the differences between punishments and consequences. I think we talked about that, right? Mm -hmm. Typically when we get triggered, we do punishments, which is, I can't believe you did that. You're grounded for a week as opposed to a consequence, which is if you don't get off the computer by the agreed upon time, then X, Y, Z happens. There's so many dynamics in that because typically what ends up happening is that most kids can't transition based on time. They have to transition based on the function. So just saying 15 minutes isn't really an effective way to help a kid transition off of technology. That could be a whole other topic. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I need to dig into that for a second. So it's not about time. It's like, Hey, when you reach the next level, that's when you're done. Or when you've died four times. Right. Because if you think about it, these kids have two time frames. We learned this from Ned Hollowell, right? It's just sort of, they know now and they know not now. Right. And so if you say, okay, now it's time to get off. Well, no, wait, I'm in the middle of something. I remember really distinctly when I first started looking at helping my son adhere to the agreement we had, right? It's just sort of, okay, so when I come in and tell you, you got 15 minute warning and we were doing the whole time thing. And every night it's like, he'd get to the time when at 15 minutes, he'd be like, thank you. I've got the warning. I'm ready. And then it's like, nope, I can't get off. So we shifted from how much time does it take to, okay, so start getting off now. Walk me through the process of getting off. What are all the things you need? If you decided right now that you're going to get off the computer, stop this game, what would you need to do to be able to stop? And he walked me through, he had to trade his skins and he needed to let his friends know that he was going to come back tomorrow and that he needed to make sure he was in a safe spot in the game and all this stuff. It took him 22 minutes from the time he decided he was going to get off until the time he could actually turn off the computer and walk away and come to dinner, right? And so Hmm. knowing that it changes the whole dynamic. And so instead of saying 15 minutes, 14 minutes, 12 minutes, it's be like, hey, buddy, it's time to start getting off. What's the first thing you need to do? Oh, I need to let my friends know that I'm starting to close down. Great. Why don't you do that? And then go trade your skins and I'll check in on you in five minutes, right? It's that sort of you're walking them through the transition process instead Mm -hmm. of expecting them to be able to just turn it off. I caught you guys telling your partners and your husband all the time, don't you? Mm -hmm. So my partner has the same sort of time blindness thing. And I called him on it. I was kind of like, he'd say, okay, I'm going to be home at 730. And he was never home at 730 when he said he was going to be home at 730. And I figured out that when he said, I'll be home at 730, he remembered 730, which means that he'd leave his office at 730 because that was the only number that he remembered in his head was the 730, which meant that he was 
always home at 742 because it took him 12 minutes to get home. But it was this sort of, hey, you keep, you're 15 minutes late consistently. What's going on? When we were able to unravel it, we realized it was about time awareness and about kind of how he sees or doesn't seem tied. So now it's not what time are you going to be home? It's what time are you going to leave the office? And then I can do the math to figure out what time it's going to be home. I'm going to use that. <laughs> it's very smart. So the other thing that I want to hear all about is fake calm versus real calm. Well, parents tell me all the time that they're like, okay, yeah, I get it. I'm not upset. And they do this thing where they clench their teeth and they calm. If you've ever had a kid who's upset and you say, calm down and we can have this conversation, it'll be like, I'm calm. I am calm. And it's really important to know that it's not about regulating your voice. It's really about getting your brain kicked back into that more frontal lobe part, that executive function part. And so your kid might need more than five minutes to calm down. If you check in with them in 15 minutes, you give them time to calm down and you start talking about what's going on at school. And all of a sudden you get that avoidance reaction or you get that triggered reaction. It's a good indication that they aren't really calmed down and you want to give them more time or more consciously work with them to try to reclaim their brain. Yeah. And that goes for us as adults too. It's true. Now that you say that, there's times where I've 100% said I'm calm and no part of me is actually calm. Yeah. I wanted to be calm, but I couldn't actually physically do it at that moment. So there was that too. But that's a really important thing to notice, not even just for the kids, but for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Everybody has their own recovery time. I mean, I know for myself that if I'm really triggered, I can say I'm sorry, but I cannot go back to the conversation probably even to the next day because I'm still feeling it in my body. Same. And so just knowing that if you're like that, some of your kids are like that as well. Although some of these kids are like ducks, right? It's just sort of everything rolls off their back the five minutes later and they're just fine and they're out there playing Mm -hmm. and we're still seething about the argument. (laughs) And that's because we've got attached to the story, right? It's just sort of our kids kind of let go of the story and they just move on, but we've got, you know, 50 more years of story developed. And so it's easier to kind of get hooked into that whole thing. It's so fascinating. And I think this is such an important topic because it really is some of the foundation of how we're helping these families, how we're helping our kids and teaching them how to adult and also what's realistic and what's not realistic. So we both really appreciate you coming on. And as always, it's always so fun to to chat with you and check in. So we're going to head over to Patreon and talk a little bit more about why yelling works and not taking things personally. And I'm very fascinated to hear a little bit more about that. So if you are a member of our Patreon, head on over there so you can hear the rest of our conversation. And if you're not, go to www.patreon.com slash podcast to hear the rest of that conversation. Yes. Diane, thank you so much. How can our audience connect with you? What are the best ways? If you want, you can find us at impactparents.com. We've got a free gift for everybody on the Learn Smarter podcast. If they go to impactparents.com slash learn smarter. Perfect. If you're ready to get support and you know you need help, we do parent training and coaching. And so we'd love to have you be part of our community. And I love partnering with you guys. And we will put that link in. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Join us over on Patreon. And Diane, will you say our signature sign-off, which is have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week. Have a great week. 